Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. This is Jason from A Nice Place to Brew. I'd like to welcome everybody, welcome everybody to this special episode of A Nice Place to Brew. As we've said before, uh, we are a show about all things beer and beer making, and we are going a little bit off script for this episode. And with that being the case, I would like to introduce my co-pilot for today's episode, Rich. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the intro. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I am very happy to be here. Rich is a neighbor of mine, and he's from the great Darien, Illinois. It's a nice place to live. Very nice place I'm, to live. I'm not the only person that can say that. Rich can speak firsthand about that. Um, Rich and I just uh, made a trip up to Wisconsin to buy supplies to make wine. And today's episode is going to be all about um, winemaking in general. We're going to go th- kind of through winemaking one by one. And then we're going to go through our real our, our, our trip up to Wisconsin, what we did when we brought everything back, and where everything stands right now. So before we get too far into these topics... Rich, do you want to give a uh, give a little intro? What kind of what's your background? Do you uh, are you mainly a beer maker, mainly a winemaker? What's what's been kind of your focus in beverage making or home brewing thus far? So, I have always started out as a home brewer of beer. Um, that's been my go-to. Started as an extract brewer and then decided to up my game at some point. And now I have a, a ten-gallon system that I brew with a friend. And um, so now, um, how, long, ex- uh, went to, how long have you been brewing beer? Eight years. Eight years, man. You got you got me beat by several. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't do it a whole ton, but um, yeah, it's it's been quite a while since I started. I remember uh, when George and I made our first couple of batches. Um, you were somebody that we went to very early on, and you had some really valuable advice for some of those early batches that we had. Thanks. You, I mean, you went you were you went all grain before we did, so yeah. It's um, we had. I remember back back at that time we had so many questions about beer making and you know more specifically all grain in general, and you knew a lot. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's there's plenty of good resources out there, um, and I was on the internet. I read a couple books and um, just kind of went from there. That's awesome. What's uh, what's been your the best? Um, What's been the best batch that you've made thus far? Best batch. Oh, that's a tough one. Probably my Belgian triple. The recent one? The recent Belgian triple. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a good one. That's awesome. It's aging nicely. Yeah. Made here in Darien, Illinois. <laughs> made here in Jason's garage. <laughs> made here in my garage. Exactly. <laughs> That's probably why it turned out so well. <laughs> Maybe later on in the episode we can talk about that brew day because yeah, we had a we had a dual systems brew day with two different batches going on at that uh, at that time. It was a it was a great brew day. It was very good. Yeah, very productive. Well, let's get right to, let's get right into it, shall we? So I'd like to start off here and kind of go go through uh, go through kind of um, winemaking uh, one hundred and one. Um, as I said before, this of course is a is a podcast mainly about beer making. The process for making wine has a lot of similarities with making beer, but there's some there's some big big differences in the in the process. Um, at one of the um, um, homebrewers meetups that I that I go to on on a fairly regular basis, 
there is a, a winemaker in the area that I've had uh, had conversations with. One of the things that he told me about winemaking when I started asking questions is it's a more forgiving process than beer making. And that and I, that always struck struck me as as kind of interesting because I always saw winemaking as this very in depth, long, patient process that involves you know several steps that I just wasn't uh, wasn't familiar with. The idea of it being forgiving was was kind of puzzling to me, but now that I've made a couple of of wine batches, it makes more it kind of makes more sense. If you make a mistake during a brew day or during fermentation, if your if your chamber is too warm or too cold, you know you may be tossing the whole batch. You know, in, in winemaking, you can kind of overcome a little bit more of those by, you know. Doing a couple of um, a couple of additives, racking a couple extra times, you know, stuff that you know you. So there's a less maybe hard and fast rules with that being being the fact around around winemaking. Anyways, enough about that. In beer, uh, let's let's start from the beginning. In beer making, you have a mash. You heat up water, you toss, you know, some real hot water over grains, and you extract sugars out of that. This all works, of course, because beer is grain-based. Wine is, of course, not grain-based. It is grape-based. So, um, first thing is, first part of um, winemaking is is having the right grapes. Yeah, and that uh, certainly... Depending on what you choose, there's different processes too as you go. If you want to make a red versus a white, um, and just to just to kind of circle back to where we went, so um, this place is called Mitchell Vineyard, and it's just south of Madison in, in Wisconsin, and it's a small mom and pa shop, and they have I don't know. 40 rows of grapes, would you say? I don't know. There's quite a bit. Something like that. Was, I've, I've got the list of varieties here right next to it. I, I think I counted 15 different grape varieties they had just at this one vineyard. So definitely plenty to choose from, and they keep you posted on their website as far as uh, what the bricks level is or, or the sugar content, basically, of the grapes, how much they have cur- in, in current stock, like how much of it has been picked out versus how much is they still have, if you can pick... Um, so before you plan a trip, if this is something you want to do, they have all these resources online on their website and it's, it's fantastic. They're, they're great people. The timing of this topic is very appropriate too. At the time of this recording is the beginning of October of 2018. And this is really prime what they refer to as wine season or wine harvest season, whichever uh, term you want to give to it. Um, but this really is, is the, um, best time of the year to, go to a vineyard to pick grapes. And the, you know, this the reasoning behind that is pretty simple. You know, grapes follow the same, you know, f- uh, farming and growth schedule that that basically all crops do. You have your time in the springtime where you where you plant seeds down. They have the summer to blossom and ripen. You know, then in the fall time, you know, as the uh, as the weather starts changing, you know, that's when they're kind of at the at the ripest state and, you know, ready to be picked. Yeah, right now it is definitely prime time for uh, grape picking. I think we went at the perfect weekend. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, you have your uh, have your grapes. Um, next process, or I should say, the, the next 
next part of the whole process is crushing and destemming. Now, I have to make I have to make mention of of uh, one thing before we go into this machine that does this. Every time that I tell somebody I know that I went to Wisconsin to buy grapes and to <laughs> uh, for winemaking, the next comment is always, "Oh." Did you crush the grapes with your feet? Because about 20 years ago, there was an episode of The Simpsons where where Bart was in was basically forced into a into a job where that was that's what he did, and somehow how that's lived for 20 years that everyone around thinks that that's the way that uh, that uh, the juice is made for winemaking. Yeah, we didn't use our feet for this batch. Absolutely not. And I, you know, to be honest, if there's any vineyard out there that does that, I don't want I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to drink wine that came from somebody's feet. You kidding? No. And I tell you, the the use of this machine is fantastic. I mean, it does all the hard work for you. I mean, it's going to crush all the grapes, um, de-stem. It gets rid of most of the stems. You, you you are still left with some stems, which is was uh, it's actually beneficial for your reds. It's going to give you some tannins, so so a little bit of like kind of bitterness, which is. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing. You want to have something there for uh, to adjust that flavor profile, right? And it's also important at this point too to talk about the um, the big difference in the process between making a white wine versus making a red wine. So when they go through this, um, the crusher and destemmer, what you're left with is basically a bunch of you know crushed up grapes, and it, and that's true for you know whatever blend that you're that you're wanting to make. The difference comes uh, comes at this point. If if you're making a white, what you're going to do is you're going to take all those you know all those grapes that are that are crushed for you. You're going to move those over to a juicer, and the juicer is basically going to press everything, you know as you know as tightly as could as they can, and then all the juice is going to is going to come out of the um, uh, you know come out of the the press con- con- the the press and. You know, into whatever vessel that uh, that you have to uh, to collect it, collect it in. So all you're left with is no skin, no no pulp. You know, just a you know a dense you know sugar filled filled juice. Red wine is not going to go through this juicer. Um, one of the things that ke- that gives uh, red wine the color that it is is the skin of the actual grapes. So you can't you can't lose those you can't lose those skins. So it, it so you're carrying juice and skin uh, throughout throughout everything start to finish on the red. I just wanted to throw in another option too. So let's say you had uh, a red grape, a grape that's going to produce a red wine for you. You can choose to actually run it through a, the wine press and just collect the juice. It will, however, not be as deep red as a normal finished red would be. But it would be uh, more like a rosé kind of pink in color looking at the variety of grapes that um that marshall's had um they do have a pink category so is that the is that the trick to that or is that more is that more specific to the grape type um honestly i'm not entirely sure about that it's uh delaware is the type of grape um yeah honestly i'm not too sure about that i but I, i i do believe that with uh, even just a red grape if you were to press it you you would still get decent wine it's just going to be more pink in color it's not going to be like a deep dark red yeah okay 
So at that point, you're pretty much done at the vineyard. And, uh, you know, back to our, uh, our story of traveling up there. Once we had all of our grapes uh, collected, um, crushed, pressed, um, as far as the, the white, we were done for the day. And it became quite a, quite a full full day. The, the um, there's a rule of thumb that they uh, they put when you start uh, picking as as far as volume. The volume rules for red wine is for every one gallon of wine you want to make, you're going to need 15 pounds of grapes. For every one gallon of white wine that you want to make, you need 17 pounds of grapes. So start doing multiples on that. So we we came back with uh, with enough grapes for a six gallon red wine batch. That's 90 uh, pounds of grapes for that, and then uh, seven gallons of um, seven gallons of white wine. So seven times 17, 119 pounds of white grapes. So so in so in one day, just between the two of us, we picked over 200 pounds of grapes. And crushed them and juiced half of them. It was very time-consuming. Um, More so than we expected. In fact, we wanted to try to pick a third grape variety. And uh, just we ran out of time. The, there's a certain amount of time that they need to um, run the, the grapes through their machines. And it just, yeah, it, afternoon came sooner than we thought. And uh, it was time to, to head out. Yeah. Yeah, so we made the two and a half hour uh, drive back from the, the vineyard back to a nice place to live, and uh, with uh, with our buckets and uh, and carboys all full, and uh, they've been here they've been here for just over a week now. So let's talk about fermentation, and this is uh, this is another big big difference between uh, between beer making and wine making. When you make beer you have a yeast that's going to have an attenuation rate. And I think in most uh, most yeast, it's going to be on the low end, low 60s, on the high end, I think high 80s, I think is about a, you know, that's probably a full range of attenuation rates that you have um, with, with various types. Wine yeast is not like that. Uh, I guess for no, number one, there's also dry and wet yeast that you can buy for beer. Virtually all wine yeast is dry yeast. So, um, so your process is not whether it's dry or, or, or wet. Um, I'm not sure if a yeast starter is a thing for wine or not. I should, I should look that up. But, you know, the process, you just you have a packet of dry, of dry yeast, follow the instructions to rehydrate, and you're, you're pretty much ready to go. Anyways, what I was saying about attenuation rates, wine yeast will attenuate 100% of the sugars that's, um, that that yeast is introduced to. So we talk about final gravities for a beer. Uh, many final gravities will be 1.01, 1.05. If you have un- unfermentable sugars like lactose, you're going you're gonna to be in the 1.02, 1.03 range, depending on how much is there. Um, you're not going to have any such thing with wine. Um, when is your wine done fermenting? The rule for when it's finished is when the gravity falls below 1.000 for three days straight. No beer yeast is going to do that. That's very impressive, Jason. I didn't know that. Oh, <laughs> okay. Like, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching here. Okay. So anyways, um, so about the fermentation, 
Um, so just to give you an idea of what's happening, we actually had two fairly large buckets. They're 7.9 gallon buckets um, full of, and the, the red the red grape, which was, a, it was actually a Frontenac. I don't think we mentioned what it actually were. Mm-hmm. It was a Frontenac grape. And so we got the skins, all that fruit and is, is all in this vessel. And you could just pitch right up, right onto those, onto the fruit and stir it up and it should be good to go. But worth noting is before all that happened, we did treat the wine with some, with sulfites. So we used Camden tablets and the ratio or the, the, the rule of thumb with that is uh, one tablet per gallon of wine. Do you want to talk about a little bit about what Camden tablets, what their kind of utility is? Yeah, so the Camden tablets, it's um, it's a, a form of sulfites. It can come in this tablet form. It can come in just powder form. Um, and it's sodium dioxide. And the purpose of it is to kill off any wild yeast that there might be. Um, there was plenty, I think, especially on the white wines, the white wine that we picked. Um, that you get, you're going to get like some uh, kind of rotted grapes in there here, here and there. Um, and so, you know, you might be introducing some bacteria, some wild yeast, stuff like that. You just want to make sure you're going to kill that all off and whatever yeast you pitch, that's, what's going to be actually, uh, consuming the sugar. Good point. Yeah. So going back to the fermentation with the red, um, you basically let it ferment. It's roughly a a week and it's, and it's generally going to be mostly fermented out. Um, there may still be some residual sugar. Um, worth noting also, um, all, all that pulp and skins and fruit, whatever's left in there, um, that's all going to rise up to the top when, um, fermentation takes place because of all the CO2 that's produced as a byproduct of fermentation. So all that fruit rises up and it is suggested that on a daily basis, you, you get a stick or a spoon or something sanitized and you, you punch it back down. It's called punching the cap. That is a, a, a wine term. I did not know that. Punching yep. the cap. Punching the cap. Yeah. I guess it's worth saying, too, that the same sanitation rules apply for both wine and beer making. You don't, you don't miss that when, if you make the step over to winemaking. So the, the other part about that when you say punching the cap is you're extracting further sugars out of the fruit by doing that. Yeah. So definitely a good idea to give it a good stir. Um, it's going to ensure Every a nice, uh, yeah, a nice even fermenta- fermentation and get all, get all the sugars out as you can. That's yep. uh, what it's all about. Yeah. So once your gravity has fallen down below 1.000, um, you're, you're, you're done with that stage at that point. Um, you will then rack to another container. There's a lot of racking involved in winemaking. You can, you can rack a half a dozen times, sometimes more, you know, depending on, you know, when you've decided to you know, call it finished, but you, you hear that term at several, at several different stages. It doesn't happen just once or twice, but anyways, once, uh, once you've moved it into a new container, um, there's a couple things that's recommended to do first is add a, uh, at a, a different type of tablet and the uh, tablets called the potassium sorbate. What potassium sorbate does is it, um, is it stops all fermentation and yeast activity. Um, this is kind of in prep, uh, in preparation for back sweetening, which we'll talk a little bit, a uh, little bit more, uh, as we get further in. Um, but just think of it like this. If you don't add potassium sorbate, 
then you still have you know dormant yeast left in the uh, in the liquid. And if you introduce sugars later on to in an effort to back sweeten the wine, all you're going to do is restart fermentation. So you're just you're not going to be back sweetening your wine. You're just going to be adding more alcohol. So, yep. And it will likely end up being a sparkling wine. Yeah. And potentially blow up some bottles. So most likely blow up some bottles. Yeah. Yeah. Or blow corks out from bottles. So yeah, I got to do a okay Google because there's a, there's another um, there's another um, thing that I used and it's I can I can name it while I'm looking it up. It's potassium metabisulfite. And I need to remember exactly what the um, what the use is for that. And Google, you're going to get a free plug out of this. This is really good pod right here. Check this out, Rich. Okay, Google, show me potassium metabisulfite. Potassium metabisulfite, KD sulfur pentoxide, also known as potassium pyrosulfite, is a white crystalline powder with a pungent sulfur odor. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> and that and actually what's funny is that worked on my phone too, so I'm looking at the same thing that Jason is. The main use for the chemical is as an antioxidant or chemical sterilant. It is a disulfite. Oh, so it so it interacts with the Camden tablets. No, see uh yeah. For some reason, I thought that it was the same thing as salt the uh, Camden tablets, but no, I think uh, it's a little different. I think the purpose of it is the same. I think in general, it's just meant as a, a cleaning agent. Okay. Okay. I've got another thing to say about cleaning agents as we get further on. But um, once you've added that, the next step, and th- this is um, this is specific to winemaking. You don't have anything in beer making like this, and that's degassing. And this is a one of the things that um, one of the things that um, I learned early on is with a lot of homemade wines, um, you're going to run into a lot of glasses that have just kind of a fizzy kind of soda like mouthfeel to it, and it's oftentimes it's accidental. Well, the reason that the reason that that gets created is whoever the home winemaker is is skipping just the degassing phase. Um, degassing is very simple. Um, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can buy various degassing wands or a drill bit. Uh, that's, that, that's what I have. And you just, you know, you just kind of run that through the, uh, through the liquid, um, until bubbles stop forming and all the gases that have been left over in the liquid have had a chance to escape. It's recommended that when you do this, you're doing this in a wide mouth container, not just a narrow carboy. Um, uh, type vessel. Are you looking stuff up? Yes. Oh, getting educated here. I'm trying to stay sharp here. <laughs> We're doing good, doing good. So again, uh, I, the the length of time to degas a wine is going to vary, um, batch by batch on the low end 10 minutes on the high end 30 minutes also depending on how much um, uh, how much airspace they have um, and then after uh, the degassing is done you can add an additional clearing agent there's a couple of g- really effective clearing agents um, sparkaloid powder is one of those Isinglass is another once you do an addition of either of those seal up the container and go away for about a week you will see the you will see the noticeable color difference 
and additional clarity left in the in the wine after that's after that's added and th- that's really your objective at that point is to, is just to clarify the wine as much as you can and be patient so that, that's I, a common thread among winemaking is being patient because it's only going to get better over time I do want to take a, a step back and talk a little bit about the regs. I think we did s- skip a step here. What did um, we miss? So we were talking about these pails that we had full of um, grape juice, which is actually called the must at that point. Oh, jeez. Um, if we go through this and not talk and not throw that word in there. Yeah, you got to throw must. around the word must. Yep. yep. Um, must will basically replace the word grist from beer making. There we go. Um. So we have our must and we have all of our fruit in there in this for our red wine. Um, what we had to do um, in order to put it into a, a carboy, our, second, our secondary fermentation, um, we had to press the grapes. And that was a fun procedure. Um, normally, what you would do is use an actual grape press or fruit press. Um, in our case, we didn't have a usable grape press, so... Um, the method that we used was nylon. Uh, it was a five-gallon nylon paint strainer, or you could use any sort of other not a sack that you can get from like the brew store or something like that. Um, you line a bucket and you just pour away, and you could just lift up all the all the fruit and into another vessel. And you just we ended up just pressing ours by hand. So you can do the same thing with uh, in primary as well. As a matter of fact, I've done that with a couple of batches. Um, what you were just describing, what we did with this past batch, we were doing after primary was done. There's a lot of a lot of places where um, you'll just leave the bag on top of the juice itself and then pitch the yeast into the juice. That might be actually the, the better way to do it. You're going to have all your fruit contained. Exactly. Um, and then when it comes time to actually press that stuff, it's it should be... Well, it's going to be messy either way, oh, yeah. probably. There's, but, there, uh, there's no, there's no avoiding that. I yeah, yeah. Wine, wine making is a messy business. <laughs> so wear, uh, wear uh, disposable wear, clothes. Wear clothes you're not, you're not afraid to ruin. And rinse off your driveway or your garage or whatever your work work surface. <laughs> Have is. a hose nearby. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to to circle back to that that little point because we did have to do a little bit of work to get that into its juice form. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to talk about clearing agents a little bit more. You good? I'm good. Okay. So I was mentioning Sparkaloid or Isinglass. Have you, is there a, uh, any other cleaning agents, the agent that you've used, you know, prior to back sweetening? Personally, I have never used those. Okay. Um, um, I am content enough just racking the wine a couple times I feel that a lot of suspended yeast is just going to fall and settle. You do a good job racking, and uh, you end up with some pretty clear wine. And that's that's really, I think, at the end of the day, what you're looking to do. Um, I'm not opposed to using these things. I just have not used them in the past. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, once the wine is cleared, and how would you say you would be done with this? I mean, is this just an eye test? Is there any kind of, you know, tall tale signs that said, hey, I'm done? When your patience has run out and you want to actually <laughs> drink your wine, then it's time. It's time to bottle. 
we're not there yet. We still got to get through uh, get through back sweetening. Oh, that's right. As far no, just specifically about uh, about the the clearing. Is it is that all it is? Is it just the eye? I I think so. I think uh, you could take a look at the bottom of the carboy, see if there's anything collecting. I mean, I think after a couple racks, you're not going to see a whole ton down there. Um, in it, which case, I think you know why not start with your other um, additions. All right. Okay. Like back sweetening. Like back sweetening. Let's talk about let's talk about that. Um, prior to back well. Prior to back sweetening, you're going to need to. It's recommended that you're going to use a different uh, different carboy or or bucket to do this. So have one nearby. Um, this is made possible again, going back to an earlier point that we talked about, because you've added potassium bisulfite. So by introducing sugars, you're not going to restart fermentation. The sugars are going to do strictly. You're going to be there strictly just to give your wine a sweeter taste. Very important step. Don't skip it. No, no, you you know you can't. So anyway, um, measure out your sugar. Um, what I, was recommended to me and what I did. There's a couple different ways you could do this. You can use pure sugar. You can rack over half the wine, add the sugar, and then rack the rest of the wine over. That's going to kind of you know kind of divide up the sugar addition, but it's going to mix a little bit better at that point. There's also um, there's also people that recommend that you boil the sugar and just you know create a liquid uh, liquid syrup out of it. Um, I've never done that. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I just I, I can't speak to it myself because I've never done it. Rich, you have, haven't you? I have not. Oh no, I, I have I haven't ever actually back sweetened a wine. Oh, I'm on my own here then. Jason okay. is the back sweetening expert because. Um, he has made other fruit wines, berry wines, berry wines, yep. and they are back sweetened and they're very delicious. So. Yes. So yeah, Jason's an expert on this one. Yeah. It took a. I mean, I'm telling you, the back sweetening additions were lot were big. There was a lot of sugar used to to put that together. I don't remember the exact quantity offhand, but it was a lot. So, so. it makes it makes your batch a little bigger. Yeah, probably. It does. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Anyway, um, back sweetening. Uh, once once um, once you're done with the addition, seal it up. Let me get an actual time frame of how long you're supposed to wait from that point. Because after you're back sweetened, the next thing is is bottling. But you've you know got to go back to waiting. You got to go back to being patient a little bit. Um, so worth noting, no, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks I had between back sweetening and no. That's not right. So I'm going to chime in on back sweetening just a tiny bit here because um, we ended up so much juice for the, for the white wine that we actually reserved some of that for the intent of back sweetening with the same grape juice. So um, this is a technique that is used, um, and I w- had and I wish that we actually had reserved some red and 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 kept it unfermented. Um, so that we can back sweeten with the the Frontenac grape. Also, um, sadly, we'll be just using sugar, which should be perfectly fine. Um, and the method that I, that I use to keep and preserve this is I actually just filled up a bunch of containers um, with the juice and threw them in my chest freezer. So 
uh, once it gets close to, to game time on back sweetening, I'm going to let them thaw out and uh, we're just going to go ahead and use that juice. I love the idea of doing that. I've never, you know, being this is my first time making a uh, red or white wine. Um, I think it's awesome that we had enough left over to be able to do that. So we're not, you know, we're not having to sweeten with our, you know, with artificial sugar. You know, what are we sweetening it with? You know, the actual juice that it that it all stems from. Right. Same grape variety. Yeah, exactly. No, it was a great, it's a great idea. I just looked in my uh, in my uh, book from the first batch that I did. I had six weeks between back sweetening and when it moved into a bottle. There was a couple of tastings to see where things were at between that time, but I, I don't know. I don't. Jeez. Did that showing my lack of education here? <laughs> did that flavor change much as you tasted? Oh, over the throughout six that, week throughout period? that six weeks, I actually I um I did it an, an addition uh, during that time just based on what I was tasting. My the the initial impression I had from the first taste was it was thin, and I didn't like that. I mean, I knew I was making a fruit wine, but I didn't want you know one that just kind of tasted, you know, something halfway between juice and water. So I read up online and one of the things that I that was recommended to me was I do a small addition of glycerin which you can buy in just a little 4 ounce tube. Um I think I only added um No, I you know what maybe the bottle was bigger. I did add 4 ounces into the um uh into the recipe and it did what I need what I needed it to. Um it I mean it wasn't immediate that the um, that the body started to improve, but over time, it you know it did. Back to the patience thing, you know, wine's going to get better over time, you know, and it's you know it's not a quick turnaround. You've got to you got to be willing to be patient with it. So we've been patient. We waited six weeks after our back sweetening time, and it's just time to add bottle at this point, right? That's it. Yep. Yeah, you were part of both bottling days. You were nice enough to uh, to, to help out. You uh, and your buckets came in very hand very handy. As, as a matter of fact, they saved the day. We wouldn't have been able to do it without it. Um, I recommend a decent bottling bucket and uh, don't forget to sanitize. Sanitize, sanitize. Um, worth noting about sanitization, sanitizing. Um, in the wine world, a lot of people will actually use some sort of mixture of. Um, sulfites or camden tablets with their vessel and uh that's what they use to to sanitize as opposed to like the traditional the traditional um sanitizers that beer users will will use like star san or what are some other ones i iota four yeah stuff like that um so yeah just just worth worth noting because it's kind of interesting that it's it's a little different um I guess because wine you wine makers have that on hand and it can be used in that way. That's how they use it. But me personally, I prefer the traditional beer stuff because I'm just familiar with it. Yeah, me too. I've I've used Star Sand since day one. It gets the job done. You know, I just haven't taken the time to get educated about others because I've found the one that works. Yep, it's 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 easier in my opinion than the than the Camden meth Camden tablet or sulfite methods. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, with your wine in a bottle, corked. Corking became a project. Do you remember that? 
Corking is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, if you've never, if you don't break anything. If you haven't done it before, it's um, it's a little. It can be intimidating. You have to you have to muscle the the cork down um, quite hard. And I, we were using the Portuguese double lever corker. It's uh, relatively inexpensive. I think it's like twenty five bucks or something from the brew shop, and uh, and it actually it worked out very well. Once yeah. once once we got comfortable with it, I mean. There's a little chamber. You load it. It's kind of like a. It's almost like loading a shotgun. Yeah. You load a little shell in there. Put it cool. down with both hands. You know, use you know, use them both to just press them down until it, until it clicks, and then that's that. Absolutely, and yeah. um, definitely on the floor. You want you want the bottles to be on the floor. If you try to put it on a counter, you're just not going to get enough weight and force onto it. So definitely fill your bottles. Leave them on the floor. Um, soak your corks. Maybe a little sanitized uh, solution, a sanitizer solution, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not that bad. What about the? Um, I, I don't know about this. I'll 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 ask you about it. Um, that aluminum foil that you can put around uh, bottles, capsules, I think is what they call it. Um, do you have any experience with that using capsules? So you're referring to just like the the wrapping? Yeah. I have not used those. Um, I do know that if you want to make a sparkling wine, they do have specific corks for this. They're champagne corks. And you also need with that a wire cage. And yeah. that, what that's going to do yeah. is ensure that this cork isn't going to fly out on you because once those bottles get carbonated... Um, Anyone who's who's opened a bottle of champagne before knows what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I think everybody knows that one. So, and yeah. and I believe the champagnes you're, they they have their bottles are are a little thicker. So you may want to actually invest in, or you know, maybe you drink a ton of champagne, just keep those bottles then. Um, but those bottles are a little thicker; they could support the the extra pressure. So, just something to keep in mind if you do choose to go that route and try to make a sparkling wine. Good call. I need to run upstairs. Keep the listeners occupied, okay? <laughs> no comment. No comment. Sadly, what you do not get to see is on uh, on this table that we're using here is um, we have two 64-ounce um, growlers, and they're full of red wine. You can show them. And, uh, the Insta- Instagram. Okay, so check out Instagram. You'll see it. Um there's a couple of wine stains from those bottles on the tablecloth here um, in, true, in true wine making fashion. We'll go through the links at the end of the episode, but our page on Instagram is at a nice place to brew. So yes, two half gallon, uh, half gallon jars in front of us, uh, just finishing up uh, fermenting right now. Still got the airlocks on, still a little bit of bubbles um, going on. And it's gonna be good. I, I'm gonna speak to that too a little bit because um, it's it's actually not a not a bad idea to have a little bit of extra wine on hand, um, especially when you start racking. Um, you might you're gonna lose a little bit of volume when you rack, and ideally you want your carboy to be really full to like eliminate as much headspace as possible. Um, that's just so that it's not in contact with as much air. Air is not good for it at that point. So. Um, yeah, so this right, these this uh, little bit of wine we have reserved can come in very handy for us when we start racking. We're going to lose some volume. We can pour right back in with exactly the same wine that we've we are making. So it's 
It's yeah. good news. Yeah. The alternative is to add, um, you can use store-bought wine. So try to find something similar, uh, maybe something mild, I don't know, like a Pinot Noir, something like that. Maybe a Cabernet. They're generally not too intense. Um, and you can use that uh, to, to backfill your carboy. This that, is another tip that's uh, in uh, wine books and things like that. And it's another thing that you would never dream of doing as a beer maker. Oh, yeah. No, you would never yeah. introduce and pour an- another, another beer. Another beer. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be bad news. I mean, who, who knows? No. Maybe we're on to something, Jason. No, we should, no, no. We should try that. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'll give it a try. No, but what Rich is saying is very valid. Um, there's many recommendations because... The problems that too much headspace or too much oxygen exposure can create, um, that is a very viable alternative. Just top it off with uh, with some store bought wine. You're not cheating by doing that. You're you're, you're still you know it's still fair game to do that. Absolutely, yeah. We got wine in a bottle. We got it corked. Um, we got to talk about aging. If you go into a store, every single bottle you're going to see is labeled with a year. The year is always going to correspond with the crop. <coughs> Bless you. Excuse me. And um, yeah, and I've I admit I'm not all overly educated on that. I know different years are associated with just a better overall grape crop. So I guess certain years become more valuable because of that. Is that correct? That that definitely sounds right as far as like uh, established um, wineries go. Yeah, there may be um, a year that they just killed it with their grapes, and uh, if they're sitting around and they had there's some bottles out there, they may be worth some money to some people. Um, I'm not that much of a wine connoisseur, so I'm not, I'm not either. I mean, I like uh, drinking it, but you know, I'll I'll just drink what's around. Right? Yeah, I'm not going to go out of my way to get you know Chateau Chantal's <laughs> 2015 red or something like that. But uh, I know there's some people that do, so I'll I'll power to them. Yeah. Now, how? What's the longest you've ever held on to one of your homemade wines? Well, well, you probably still are. So last. Last season was my first um, experience with this uh, Mitchell Vineyard where I picked my own grapes. And I want to say I have six bottles left. So, and I want to say that I bottled around New Year's. So once we get into January, it'll, it'll be about a year old. Okay. And... Yeah, no, that's that's all I got, really. I guess the rule is, I guess the takeaway is, the longer that you wait, the more it's going to pay off. You can certainly drink your wine right away, um, but there is definitely some benefit to to letting it sit in age. And I think, I think the year mark is kind of uh, kind of standard. Like if you can make it to a year, fantastic. It's it's probably in prime drinking condition. But if you wait five years, it's going to be even better, right? <laughs> that, At least that's what they say. That may be true. What's um, the oldest wine that you've ever had? The oldest wine. So, um, Teresa and I, my wife, um, we traveled to California at one point. Napa? No, we were actually south. We were in Monterey. Oh, okay. 
So we flew into San Fran, drove south to LA, and stopped in Monterey in between. And it's actually very fantastic wine country there. Um, we bought, and it was actually the most expensive bottle of wine I ever bought in my life. <laughs> I want to say it was like $50 or something like that for one single bottle. Okay. All right. And it just happened to be the one that tasted the best to me when we did our tasting. And I was like, Therese, I know this is ridiculously expensive for wine, but we're taking <laughs> one home. And um, we left it. We did this right when we got married. And I think for our f- oh, maybe seventh anniversary, we decided to give this thing a shot. We opened it up and it did not taste like it did when we were in California. It, I, I feel like... That's uh, so interesting. Okay. It, it was it was not as good. Not I, as I remembered really? it. Yeah, I was honestly very surprised, and we both oh, felt the same way about man. it. We let this it. Is, this is a shot to the whole like the, the rule about I, it's get, getting better over time. Unless good wine, and maybe I just don't like good wine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a red, right? Right. It, it was a red. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Black Nova. It was called. Okay, that's not the grape name, right? That's that's that, the, the, that was the bottle name. Okay, the brand. Okay. I don't know. I forget the winery too, but I just know it's called Black Nova. It was very expensive, and it tasted much better fresh on the vineyard. Uh, it may have been aged. I might have had a bottle that was like a year old or something like that. Yeah. But or a few years. Who knows? But yeah, by the time we had it, it it didn't taste the same, and I I wasn't particularly a fan. I feel like a, I feel like setting up a poll to further delve into this. How many other people have, you know, cases out there like that where the um, concept of getting better over time just doesn't follow through? Is this, is this based on nothing? (laughs) Is is this an old concept that's not true anymore? I don't know. I want want to say that like uh, diminishing returns kind of takes effect here. I think, uh, I think it, 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 aging will improve the flavor of the wine to a certain extent, but I, I think that reaches a point where it's it's going to reach its peak and then it's going to just fall back out from there. I think that's what happens with the wines. I remember I went to an Asian restaurant um, two years ago, and they had um, they had a wine collection behind a glass case um, in one one area of the restaurant. I want to say like the oldest wine that they had there was like from the 80s. I mean, wow. like like 30-year-old wine, yeah. And I, and I think the price tag for buying one of these bottles was like 5 or 600 dollars. Yikes. Yeah. So that that raises a lot of questions for me about what what a law of diminishing returns could potentially be. Can you imagine drinking a drinking wine out of a $50,000 collection? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I love the idea of it, but God, I I think I would rather sell it and uh, buy some Amazon stock or something. <laughs> Maybe keep a few bottles here and there to to pop and and and, ha- and enjoy. But you know, uh, if you play your cards right, you could maybe get a better return on that wine than Amazon stock. That could be. Yeah, you'd have to. That's <laughs> you'd have to. You have to do a deep dive into into both those things. You'd have to become a subject matter expert in wine collections to figure it out. Well, I'll let you know next time I stumble across a fifty thousand uh, <laughs> dollar wine collection. Wine collection. <laughs> All right, um, man. I, th- I think we got. We didn't forget anything. We went through the process. That was winemaking one hundred and one. Winemaking one hundred and one. Yeah. Yep. 
Good stuff. Give it a try. Mitchell Vineyard. Uh, they're up in Madison or close to Madison. Uh, Oregon, Wisconsin is the town. Um, I just checked the website and actually they are pretty low on grapes. So, um, yeah, get out there if you can. And give winemaking, if, if, for all the beer makers out, out there, give winemaking a try. You've got most of the equipment already. You yeah, might, you might as exactly. well. Exactly. You know, listen, I mean, it's, as we said at the top of the show, it's more forgiving than beer making. You know, people everywhere like it. You know, makes, you know, it's easy to do. You know, it's just, a, it's, I mean, you spend most of the time just, you know, kind of waiting for, for things to get done. And like we said, it's going to get better over time. So, yeah, g- give it a shot. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it's about all I got. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to A Nice Place to Brew. Um, as we said uh, said earlier, too, it is at the time of this recording is the early part of October. Um, George is currently vacationing in Ireland with his wife and family. Shout out to George. I'm insanely jealous right now. Have fun, George. Cheers to you, my friend. We will be back with an episode in just a matter of weeks. We will have a Oktoberfest heavy episode, and that's going to be uh, going to be the next um, uh, next episode for us. Um, again, uh, stay uh, stay close to us on uh, on the SoundCloud, the iTunes, the uh, Android devices, whatever you're listening to us on. Um, check out our social media links at Facebook at Nice Place to Brew, Twitter Nice Place to Brew, and Instagram at a Nice Place to Brew. We also have a fantastic website that George spent countless hours putting together at a www.aniceplacetobrew.com. Check us out, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Um, we always will end our shows one particular way, but we're going to have to do this a little bit differently here. Rich, can you hand me one of those jars in front of us? And you can grab the other one, and we're going to revise this accordingly. It takes a lot of good wine to make great wine. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.